In John chapter 14, Jesus says, My Father's house has many rooms. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Amen, friends. Is Jesus giving a politician's answer in this morning's gospel? You know what I'm talking about. An elected official sits before a public forum. Someone comes up to the microphone with a concern. They ask a question about perhaps the school district budget. Nodding sympathetically, brow furrow, the official answers. I share the concern you all have about the education of our children. As a community member myself, I want to see our resources used in ways that will benefit our next generation. Lots of nice-sounding thoughts, but the particular question is never answered. Not only politicians do this. Celebrities avoid tough questions in interviews. Somebody on a first date might skirt around some questions. Is that what Jesus is doing here? He's asked a question in verse 23, and he doesn't seem to answer it. But what Jesus is doing here is different. He's not just equivocating, trying to avoid a hard question. He's giving the necessary answer. He's giving the gospel. And this necessary answer gave comfort when he gave it to the crowd 2,000 years ago. It's comfort still today. The narrow door is still open. So this event takes place in the last year of Jesus' ministry and the last months leading up to his death. He's preached pretty much everywhere in Israel by now, so by this point, he doesn't need to spend much time in any particular place teaching. Instead, he travels continually, stopping here and there for short times to teach and heal before moving on. The opposition to him is solidified by this point. His enemies are plotting how they could kill him, and perhaps that's one factor in Jesus' continual movement. Because Jesus' message It's well known at this point. Uh, You've got people who now have had time to think about what he teaches and preaches. They've been chewing on the doctrine he's taught them. And one person comes to the itinerant Jesus with one such question. Verse 23, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Most of the Bible commentaries I read to prepare today's message called this question idle speculation, a question like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? But that's not what I hear when I read this question. I'm going to take you a little bit behind the scenes into the Greek text and talk about what this question looks like there, because our Bible translation gets the essence of the question, but I think it misses the tone. In Greek, the questioner uses only four words. The phrasing is odd, it's short, hesitant. A nearly word-for-word translation would be, Lord, if the saved ones are few? You can hear the hesitancy there, right? The question doesn't even have a conclusion. It's half a question. It's an if without a then. But we all know what the then is. Lord, if the saved ones are few, then I'm not one of them, right? If the saved ones are few, I can't be one of them. Lord, if your work here, the work you've been telling us about for three years, if your message of saving love from the Father is only for a few, it's not going to be me. Lord, you know who I am. Lord, you know what I've done. If the saved ones are few, there's real heartache in this question. It's not idle speculation. It's not theological sophistry. This is eternal life and eternal death. There's a soul hanging in the balance of this question, but Jesus doesn't answer it. It's not that this is a bad question. It's not that he couldn't answer it, but it wouldn't be helpful to answer this question. See, Jesus could answer this question either way, yes, only a few, or no, many. And you know what? This person standing in front of him would still not know where they stood. He could doubt that he's among the many just as easily as he can doubt that he's among the few. So Jesus gives this person, gives the crowd an answer that points 
not to some abstract amount of saved people, but an answer that points to him. Uh, Verse 24, Jesus says, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able. Jesus gives an answer, and it seems at first like he's avoiding the question, right? But something we see in his answer shows us. Jesus isn't just giving a rehearsed answer to avoid a hard question. The questioner asked if few would be saved. Jesus' answer touches on that question. He says, many will try to enter and not be able. Jesus doesn't brush off the question. He interacts with it. Will few be saved? Many will be unable. But Jesus says more with this answer than that. He doesn't let the theoretical answer overshadow the practical answer. He starts off with the practical answer. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Here's the starting point when Jesus talks to you about salvation. He's not going to start with abstracts and theoreticals. He's not going to start with if or how many or what about. He's going to make clear at the outset that his message applies to everyone. Going on into verse 25, Jesus says, Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Again, Jesus is interacting with the question. The questioner wants to know about salvation. They want to know about the final state of the individual soul. And Jesus gives an answer that talks about that. There are some who will not be saved, he says. But the premise on which some are saved and others are not is not found in a number decreed by God. We're not meant to find the premise on which some are saved and others not in eternity past in God's hidden will. Some of y'all may be more familiar with what we call the doctrine of election than others. Maybe you're wondering at this particular moment how that doctrine interacts with this idea. And if you're wondering that, that's good. That means that you're well-grounded in Scripture and in its doctrines, and you're testing my words. But here's the rub. Jesus isn't answering this question in terms of election. That's the answer that the questioner was looking for. Lord, did God choose to save a lot of people or just a few? And this question, again, it's not being asked theoretically. This person wants to know, am I in or am I out? Is there hope for me? The answer to that question is not found in the doctrine of election. So Jesus doesn't go there. The answer to that question is found in the doctrine of the gospel and of salvation by faith alone. Jesus' answer points the questioner away from prying into things not revealed, answers which God has not given us, and points the questioner to Jesus himself. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews pictures these two options for us in striking ways in our New Testament reading. When we try and puzzle out God's hidden things, it's like approaching Sinai, the mountain that is burning with fire, approaching darkness, gloom, and storm, a trumpet blast, a voice speaking such words that those who heard it beg that no further word be spoken to them. That's what trying to find your salvation in an eternity past does to you. You can't know. You cannot pierce the veil of eternity to find this out. The past becomes terrifying. But you have come To a different mountain, the writer to the Hebrews says, when you find your salvation not in eternity past, but in this world's history, in a point in time and space in the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. Hebrews describes that as approaching Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You find Jesus there, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Don't try and find your salvation in the darkness and thunder of eternity past. Find it in Jesus. I know that you have these questions about salvation and eternity. Or maybe you've had these questions. Maybe you will have these questions. I know that in the past few weeks, I've talked to a few of you about just these very things. 
What Jesus does with this question in our reading makes it clear. God is not lying when he says that in the work of Jesus, your every sin has been paid for. It makes clear that God was not crossing his fingers behind his back when he said in our first reading this morning, Isaiah the prophet, seek the Lord while he may be found. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them to our God and he will freely pardon. That's not a lie. That's not a lie. But contemplating God's hidden eternal choices will not give you that assurance. Only a laser focus on Jesus will. I talked about that in my message last week based on Hebrews 12 about fixing our eyes on Jesus. We do that when we seek him out where he promises that he will be found. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the proclaimed word. These are places where Jesus is found. These are places where his promise of your forgiveness is announced to you as an individual. That's why he calls himself as your salvation a narrow door. It's not narrow because God wants to limit the amount of people coming in. It's narrow because God wants you to know that you're in the right place. God keeps it simple. The way to heaven is through his son, narrow door. Jesus is found by us during our time here on earth in particular means water, bread, wine, word, narrow. So friends, if you are in contact with your Savior in these places where he promises to be found, you're in. The door is narrow because its narrowness focuses us, gets our attention on the right things, makes us aware of what's truly important. What is truly important? It's doing this. It's coming here to gather together with brothers and sisters around the Savior who promises that he's present. Right? It's taking these promises back out with us into our lives. The narrow door is not the church door, it's Jesus. Okay, Church is just the place he provides where Sunday after Sunday we can come to find him in his promised means. That's what church at its core is. A place where I can reliably know that Christ will make himself present to comfort my sin-troubled soul and assure me of my salvation. A place where I know I can find Christ holding his narrow door wide open to me. Those who fail to enter will not fail to enter because God decided to leave them out in eternity past. They will fail to enter because they didn't see it was necessary at the time. They thought there was more time, more time that they could spend hearing about Jesus in the streets in day-to-day life, as he says in the text. More time to spend outside the narrow door. And there is still time. Today is still today. The Lord has not yet appeared on the clouds to call his people home. But one day he will seek the Lord while he may be found. And here's the promise Jesus makes about that. In heaven we'll see people who have entered from everywhere, from east and west, north and south. We'll see a thief who hung next to his Savior. We'll see a Pharisee who buried his lifeless God. We'll see Paul, the one-time blasphemer. We'll see Peter, the threefold denier. We'll see John, the faithful one. We'll see Luke, the Greek doctor. We'll see Mary, who was freed from seven demons. Martha, who got distracted on occasion by too much work. All of them entered through the narrow door, through their Savior, Jesus. He's still the Savior. He's still at work here in the world through his gospel means. The narrow door is still open. And many more will come through. Amen.